You can be seated. Could our worship team, uh, can I get a, not a mic, one of the stands? Come, It's like my kryptonite. Without it, I need, I need my stand. I was, and that's tall for me, too. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Without you, I'd be powerless. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, so we're starting a new series on the book of Philippians, and one thing that we're going to be consistently looking at is, is joy, and I'm thankful for Brian Himes helping me find some of these awesome pictures and also helping me name the series Pure Joy. We're going to talk more specifically about joy as we get a little bit more into it, because it's pretty shocking that this book um, uses the word joy and, and rejoicing more than any other book in the New Testament, and it's one of the letters that's written by Paul from prison. So you would think like, to actually have joy in your heart when you're in prison, and prison back in the day was even worse than it is now. You wouldn't have as meals taken care of. You'd have to like rely on people giving food, donating things to you. And so Paul is in a really difficult place, and he's not sure what's going to happen with his life. He even says that at parts in Philippians, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but to live uh, to, to die might be gain for me, to be just to go and be with Jesus right now. He's unsure about exactly what his fate is going to be, yet he writes with so much joy. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to remain joyous sometimes. It's hard for me to really understand that there's, there's a greater center than whatever is happening uh, to me in a given moment. So we're going to talk about uh, pure joy more and more specifically as we continue. But as we open looking at the book of Philippians, uh, we're going to focus on, on one key uh, concept that Paul writes about in all of his letters, almost. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the deacons and overseers, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that you'll notice in Paul's letters, when he writes to these churches, he'll say things like, to the saints at wherever he's writing to, or to God's holy people. And you would think, maybe as you think about it, it's like, wow, those people must have been a lot more holier than me, perhaps, because I don't know, someone calling me a saint, that's a little bit uncomfortable. But as Paul writes to some of these churches, you see some major issues going on. In one of the churches in Corinth, he says, there's something going on in your midst that is so messed up, even the pagans don't do it. One of you is like with your father's wife, and it's like, whoa, what does that even mean? We don't fully understand that some serious Jerry Springer type stuff is going on uh, in in this church. And yet, Paul writes with, with so much hope to these churches and these people. He says, I know, like, you're messed up, and on Monday your life is completely different than it is on Sunday, but I see you as saints. So he opens that way, and I think sometimes we need to have a bigger vision of ourselves as even though we're an imperfect church in an imperfect place, God sees us because of what we proclaim and what we're about is perhaps even better than we see ourselves And then Paul says, grace and peace to you. Which if you read the letters of Paul, it's a consistent thing that he over and over again says to these church communities. Grace and peace to you. Romans chapter 1 verse 12 says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord 
Jesus Christ. He begins Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, letters to Timothy, Philemon, and Colossians like this. Over and over again, Paul says, grace and peace. Grace is a word that might have been used at times in a letter that someone would have written in in Rome. And peace obviously connects to the shalom idea, the Jewish mindset, the peace with God, peace with yourself, and, and peace with God. It means harmony and every kind of good, basically. So over and over again, as he writes to these churches, he says, grace and peace to you, which is a really important foundation, I believe, because we need to recognize just how different some of these churches were. There was a study done by a British scholar, and he tried to figure out exactly what a a house church that Paul would have been writing to might have looked like, and his thought was that the maximum it would have been was about 30 people, and here is some of the breakdowns. This scholar went through and tried to figure out what would a house church look like. So Simon, if you go to the next slide for me, I know it's really small for you to read, but it's a craft worker in the home they met along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and a dependent relative, some tenants with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in rented rooms, some family members of a household who himself does not participate in the house church, a couple of slaves whose owners do not attend, some freed slaves who not participate in the church, a couple of homeless people, a few migrants wor- worker, working, um, renting small rooms in the home. So it's a, a very diverse group of people, right? It's different people at, at different social levels and um, economically at different places. In fact, you even see this in the church at Philippi. Who is the, the first, like the start of Paul's work in Philippi? Anybody? Lydia, yeah. So Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth, which is telling us she is an independent woman, uh, because if you had purple cloth, that was like the, the rich of the rich stuff. And so he goes and he talks with Lydia, and Lydia basically then starts to open her home, and they start to do ministry because of that. And we're going to look at another um, part of Paul's ministry in just a little bit in Philippi uh, this morning, uh, the Philippian jailer. And so you have Lydia, who is like, you know, has, has a little bit of wealth, and then a jailer, just, you know, kind of a common run-of-the-mill job. So even in that, you see that there's some diversity there. So Scott McKnight wrote a fantastic book, which I would highly recommend, called The Fellowship of Difference. And in this book, he says this about these early house churches. Add to this mix, so that mix that we've already looked at, some Jewish folks and perhaps an enslaved prostitute, and we see how many different tastes were in the typical house church in Rome. Men and women, citizens and freed slaves, and slaves who had absolutely no legal rights, Jews and Gentiles, people from all moral walks of life, and perhaps most notably people from elite classes, all the way down the social scale to homeless people. Do you think these folks agreed on everything? And that's not a rhetorical question. Let me, let me get, do you think these folks agreed on everything? No, of course not. Was it hard? Yes, it was incredibly difficult. That's what the whole point of it is, what it means truly, Scott McKnight says, to be a church. And it's just unbelievable that communities like this were started. I mean, it's just unbelievable that this kind of community exists. And Paul knows how difficult it's going to be to continue to live this out and to continue to lean into it because it's just so hard. And so as he writes to these New Testament churches, he'll write 53 times he uses the phrase, our Lord. 
Only one time does Paul say, my Lord. Over and over again, when he's talking about Jesus, it's like Jesus is the, the collective Lord of us, all of us, not just you individually. I think we can get this wrong sometimes in the songs we sing. One of the songs that I love is uh, Shout to the Lord, and it starts with, my Jesus, my Savior. And Paul might have said, I don't know that I like that song all that much. And some of the songs that we sing today, it sounds like Jesus is our boyfriend more than our Lord, you know? And it's like kind of this very personal thing about God. And I'm not saying I hope you get a lot out of the songs that we sing, and I hope that we collectively can figure out ways to, to praise God appropriately. But what Paul is trying to remind this house church of people is God is not yours because God is not you. So over and over again, he says, our Lord, our Lord, our Lord. Because it's hard for them to live out this faith. It's hard for them to be the people that God has called them to be. A friend of mine in ministry says this this way, church is unselfishness practice. Because in heaven, you aren't going to get things your way. It's not Burger King. If you come together and you just have it exactly how you want it every single Sunday, then you're probably not doing it right. Church is unselfishness practice. And we think that our world is, is pretty divided today, right? And we think that our world, there's a lot of division and there's, we need more unity. And I would argue that, yes, that's true. I just saw an article a few weeks ago. If you go to that next picture for me, Simon, uh, Joe Biden, I'm a Democrat and I love John McCain. Um, and we get that, right? We get why he maybe had to say that because our world is increasingly divided and along political lines. You know, you have whatever cable network you want to watch to reinforce your own views and you have these different things and we can just end up kind of divided on things. And it seems like technology in some ways pulls us further and further apart. Uh, we oftentimes, I think, just via text messaging and email, we can just tell our own version of every single story and then just kind of get further and further apart from each other. We're increasingly divided, and we can increasingly fall into ways that it's just like me on this side and you on that side. And we can think that in some ways we're, we're pretty divided. But one thing that is great about the United States is we have the ability to move up from like you have like one social scale and then like that person, you know, through whatever means is able to transform his or her life and now she's a CEO of a company or whatever. You know, you have like that story that would happen. That did not happen in Rome. If you were from a wealthy family, you pretty much stayed from a wealthy family. If you were from a slave family, if you were family was in slavery, generally stayed in slavery. One historian says that the closest comparison that you could make to Roman society, uh, it would be the caste system which exists in India, which is just, you are what you are, and you ain't moving. Good luck. Hopefully, if you do well in the specific system that you're in now, then eventually maybe you can be reincarnated in a better system, but the, that is what it is. That is what you are. And historians say that the Rome was, was very much like that. So elites hung out with elites, and they had some slaves around them, but they didn't really hang out with them. They were there to do their bidding. You had very divided world. It was just like you 
stayed within your system. You stayed in your lane. You didn't get out of that lane. You had no hope of getting out of that lane. And one of the greatest proofs, I think, of Christianity, perhaps, is that immediately Christian churches were different than that. Like, all of a sudden, this movement starts. And this is something that we just, like, we would fundamentally all agree with, that some of the people in our church are doctors, some of the people are are lawyers, some of the people are teachers, some people are unemployed, some people are are old, some people are young, some people are Hispanic, some people are African American, some people are just white people like me. And there's all of these different things. And we come in here, and we would just generally just, we would say, that God loves us all. And what you are out there doesn't matter for your attendance or your participation in what happens in here. And of course, what happens in here then affects what happens out there and how you live your life. But we would just fundamentally agree that that is how it is, that Praise God, we aren't here with our status symbols and we aren't focused on the things that we do outside of these walls. And that is something that was really a new idea. That a slave could have the same standing in God's eyes as someone who's elite. That a homeless person is loved by God the same way an important politician is. This is a completely new idea. It's because of Paul's work, because of his understanding, I believe, of who Jesus was calling him to be. But again, it's almost immediate that the world just changes. These churches start to exist. It was completely different. In Acts 20, I think we see a bit of of Paul's vision for this. He's writing about his, his mission, his life's purpose. He says, now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Which is, you've got to check that for a minute. If you have the Holy Spirit saying prison and hardships are going to be an issue there, I'm probably like, okay, God, lead me somewhere else. But Paul continues to lead into this stuff and continues to do really difficult ministry. And he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And that's a great mission statement for all of us right there, that we would carry and and seriously consider the task that we all have to testify to the good news of God's grace. And this, I believe, was always at the forefront of Paul's mind because of his life that had been transformed by Jesus. He wanted to expose as many people as possible to this life-transforming news. Paul was literally on fire about this. And so he went from place to place and went into prison over and over and over again and got beaten over and over again and went, even though the Holy Spirit said it was going to be difficult, because he so deeply believed in the good news of God's grace. This is stuff that's changed human history. It's changed the world. And do we believe in that grace enough? Are we as 
Church of Christ people. We take communion week after week, which is so central to exactly what it is that we're doing and who we are. I'm so thankful that I get that moment, but it's a lot easier to say, you know, God, thank you for the grace that you've given me than it is to actually show grace to people. It's easy to believe in forgiveness in the cross when it's like, God, reconcile me. But then when it's like, oh, let me go reconcile with somebody else, then it's really difficult. Paul writes to these churches over and over again, grace and peace, grace and peace. Because this truly, I believe, Paul thinks this is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian to live from this place of grace and peace. And we're going to constantly need to have our, our vision put back because it's hard for us to show grace and peace to people. It's hard when we've been wronged, when we've been hurt. But I think Paul would ask you, do you really want to carry that thing around that made you angry for that person did three years, seven months, and two days ago? And not that you're counting, but... Paul says grace and peace. Grace and peace. What if, as a church, we could say that to a hurting world? We could say that to those who are in despair, those who are in difficult circumstances. What if we could say grace and peace? We say that to each other and we say that to the world. Grace and peace. Which brings me to the story of the Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16, we have this story. I feel like this is always in VBSs, so you might have been involved in this one before. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. So Paul finds himself in prison, as usual. It's kind of shocking how often uh, the New Testament Christians are in prison. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but they always seem to find themselves in prison. So he's there in prison in Philippi, and this jailer, because of this earthquake and that everything seems to be open, this jailer now thinks, like, my life is over because it was his job to watch over this, and now it seems like everybody's going to go free. He's the Barney Fife of the New Testament because he's sleeping on the job. It's like the jailer wakes up and sees that everything is all awry, and so he just thinks, it's over for me. Things are done. I have no hope. I might as well just take my life myself. And again, like as you see the transformation of the world, the way that Jesus envisions it, this is the world that it lived, that, that was existed in Rome. If you wronged Rome, if you messed up, it's just like, all right, I might as well just take my life. There's nothing else I can do. And I bet all of us have had a moment like that. I'll, I'll use this line up here. Maybe it's on the job. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's just something that has been extremely difficult. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you have. And you have basically like before that thing happened, and then you have after that thing happened. And you kind of see your life through this. It's like there, there's, life was going on pretty good, and I had no idea how good I had it until X happened, right? 
And now I'm on this, this other side, and I kind of wish I could go back. I kind of wish that I could repair things because, man, I, I would just pay anything if I could go back. Maybe it's getting the job back or not having that diagnosis, whatever it is. And you just think, if I could just get from here to here, things would be so much better. And this is what happens to this Philippian jailer. In a brief moment, he thinks, because of what's happened, my life is over. As I know it, I have no hope. I've now failed in my position. I was like sleeping on the job. I might as well just end things because there's no reason for me to go on living. And if we're honest, you maybe have been here at one time or another in your life. And I think what Paul says to this jailer may be just a great statement for us to think about how, how we can be a church. He says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. To a hurting and broken world, and we all are hurting and broken ourselves. But to those who are struggling with addiction, who are struggling to take their next step, who find themselves on this side of the line, we are all here. We are all here. This man who is just completely failed at his job is now going to be like this, in this miserable position, assuming that all the prisoners are gone, that everything is unraveled, that life is just in this terrible state. Paul says, we are all here. What if we could speak words of grace and peace to each other in moments like that? What if we could, as a community, say to each other, what if we could be honest enough to raise our hands when we have crossed that line a little bit, to have a moment and talk with somebody, and we could say to each other, we are all here. This is hard for us to do, but Paul, I think, calls us in the mission of Jesus to be restorers of hearts, relationships, and community. But it starts here to be a place of grace and peace and then to reach out from that place. And to say to those who are in need, we are all here. And I know you might think, but you don't understand, like, my situation or my life is so difficult, it's so hard, I I couldn't actually do that. Trust me, there were very problematic issues that Paul was writing to. We've talked before about how basically they wouldn't have had to write the New Testament if it wasn't for figuring out the issue of circumcision. Because the Gentile believers are now coming into the faith and and the Jews are like, well, I got it done, so you should have to get it done too. And it really hurts the new converts class. So they're like trying to figure out like what what are they, what are they going to do? How how are we going to bring these new people into the faith? It's a, it's a huge, gigantic, hairy problem. I mean, it's it's a major, major issue. And so basically, the, the New Testament is talking about this. What does it mean for this very Jewish focused religion to become something that is going to include all people? And it's extremely difficult. And it's two churches like that that would have been divided. That even as they came together at times, they weren't all that unified. That Paul writes to Jews and to Gentiles, grace and peace 
And I think it's pretty profound that he writes grace and peace to all these places because he combines a traditional Greek greeting and a traditional Jewish greeting. This is the vision that Paul has for the church. That we would be people who got along at some time, maybe like very socially, but then like some problems happen and there's some issues between us. And now Charlie believes I have to be circumcised to be part of this thing. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not in on that. I know you were Charlie, but like, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. And Paul says, okay, you guys have some different ideas, some difficulties. You have some, some very strong beliefs about this grace and peace. Because in the kingdom of God, even Jews and Gentiles can sit next to each other. Because in the kingdom of God, people who are very different than broken situations, you can experience grace and peace. I believe this is the start of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, as he eventually talks a lot about joy. And it's the stuff that he writes about to these other churches as well, because I believe this truly is the foundation for joy. You're not going to be a very joyous, generous person if you're walking around with a scorecard all the time. If you're walking around saying, okay, you know, this person's wrong me. This has made me upset. All right, well, I'm just going to keep this. I'm going to like keep this anger and let it continue to, to build inside me. You're just not going to be a very joyous person if you live like that. So the foundation for the Christian community, the Christian community that we all can experience and, and come to know is a totally different way of viewing the world. It's grace. And it's peace. It's Gentiles and Jews coming together. It's people who have differences coming together and sharing a meal. This, I believe, is the foundation for joy. And may we think about how we can tell each other during difficult seasons we are all here. There's grace and peace for you. May we understand that as the foundation for all of our lives in Christ. May we consider how we can show that to others. There's a woman named Sun Lee who was uh, in prison uh, in North Korea from 1987 to 1992. And she was not a Christian, and she ended up in a cell uh, next to a group of about five people who were in prison because they were Christians. She would sit next to them for years, She saw them get tortured. She saw them get beaten. She watched them continue to live out their faith and not deny Christ even under the most difficult circumstances. Eventually, in 1992, she was released from prison. She went back to South Korea. And for a little while, she just went back to life as normal. But after a few years, she decided to convert. She was asked why in an article, and she said it was because she used to dream about their singing. That she would dream about these five Christians who experienced great persecution, who weren't in perfect circumstances. And so she would dream about their songs. 
So eventually, she became a Christian because she just couldn't stop thinking about it. People who had difficult situations continuing to sing and continuing to honor Christ in the way that they were. May we find ways to communicate the love and grace of God to the world that needs it. May we experience peace and grace in all of our lives, and may we show that to the world. You never know what might change someone's life. You never know what moment might be so significant for someone else. And may we live from such a place where we're not keeping score, where we have grace and peace in our hearts, and then it spills out into everything that we do. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She says this this way. She says, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. All of us have the ability to do something this week with great love. We all have the ability to have the, the grace and peace of God so in our hearts and in our minds that we do something for someone with great love. May we see the words of Paul over and over again to these communities, these struggling groups of people trying to figure out what Christian unity looked like where there's a really rich woman over here and there's a homeless man over here and they're trying to figure out exactly what this looks like to show the love of God to each other. And Paul writes to them over and over and over again, grace and peace. Because this is truly our foundation. We're going to sing the song, The Greatest Commands now. It's one of Uh, Our our church's favorites, I would say, just simply communicates the love of God. And so I invite you to participate in, in singing with us and recognize that we all have the ability to do things with great love and care. May we communicate grace and peace to the world. Let's stand and worship.